Amen. Before we open the word, uh, we have a couple of boys to dedicate to the Lord. So if their parents will bring out Matthew and Caleb, we'll dedicate them to God. <laughs> Matthew's excited about being on TV. He's, <laughs> he's seven years old. Let's pray for him. Lord, thank you so much for Matthew. He's so smart and he can do so much. He's a great big brother. And we just see you developing him and, and, and helping him to just know about you. And he'll probably never remember not believing in you and knowing you. And we thank you for this boy, all the gifts that you've given him, the future that you have for him. Lord, I just pray that you would always have your hand on him, help him to always know that you love him. And God, I pray that he'll just continue to become more and more the young man that you want him to be. And so we thank you for him in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, buddy. Come here, Caleb. Oh, you are so cute. Yeah. See, Matthew's like, they didn't do that when I got up there. Like, ooh. But he loves his little brother. <laughs> Let's bring Caleb to the Lord. God, thank you so much for this special little guy. What a gift from you. And looking at him with all the joy and enthusiasm that he has and just his curiosity that seems endless and um, the way that he is learning to express himself. Uh, it's just exciting to think of the potential that this little life has and what you're going to do, the world that he's going to grow up seeing and what he's going to know. And so, God, we just lift him up to you. He's a gift from you, and we give him back to you. And we just thank you so much for this great little guy. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> Are you done? <laughs> God bless you guys. See you, buddy. <laughs> you fine? <laughs> All right, now let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We've been going over the last six weeks through the seven letters to the churches. The book of, in, our, in our trip through the book of Revelation, which is in our trip through the Bible, we're finishing that up. And um, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation were kind of a, a pre attachment to the book. The whole book of Revelation is all about Jesus revealing himself. And a part of that is these letters to seven churches that were there in Asia Minor. And each of them had their own particular characteristics, their own advantages, disadvantages, needs, problems, and so on. But this whole book was going to be taken around from Ephesus to all the other churches, and it ends up in Laodicea, which is the seventh church that we see um, today that Jesus addresses. Um, it's amazing to me when you think about Jesus is speaking here about churches that, I mean, they didn't exist when he was on the earth. Jesus, as far as we know, never traveled as far north as Asia Minor, and yet he knows the details of these churches and what's going on and the details about their city, and, and he demonstrates that in a, in a shocking way. 
But imagine, you know, this letter is being taken around and everyone hears everyone else's letter. And by this time, the people in Laodicea know that the other churches have heard their letters and have heard the Laodicean letter. And they're listening to this being read and they're hearing, you know, Jesus say, you know, you Ephesians have lost your first love and working down through the letters, he hears the, the Laodiceans hear the good and bad things that Jesus says about the various churches and the different observations that he makes. So now it comes to their letter. And like we would be if there was a letter about us, we'd be kind of nervous because, man, Jesus said some pretty harsh things about some of these churches, but also excited because Jesus said some really good things about some of the churches. It was kind of mixed. So you're just thinking, I hope it's not too bad when he's talking about us. Hope he says some good things. Some guys are like, hey, maybe he'll mention me. The people in Laodicea were pretty proud, so they were probably expecting to hear a great letter. And so they began to read the letter, and it kind of opens up with Jesus saying, you make me sick. In fact, I vomit when I think of you. That's not what you want to hear. You're like, oh boy, is this embarrassing. And you'd expect it to get worse. And, and most people, when they think of the church at Laodicea, they don't get past the vomit. They, you know, they just think like, these are the people that made Jesus sick, and he throws them up, end of story. But the truth is, I think he has as positive of a message to them, maybe more than the other six letters, because what he holds out for them is the possibility, his heart for them is profound, and often we miss it when we think of this church of Laodicea. So let's take a look at it and stopping along the way to make some observations. Verse 14, Revelation chapter 3. He says, And to the angel, the messenger, the pastor of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus identifies himself in each of the letters in different ways. And here he says, first of all, I am the Amen. Well, when we pray, usually we tack an amen on the end of it. Amen means so be it. And it was kind of like a way that they would finalize what they're going to say. Like, this is the last word, amen. So Jesus says, I am the amen. I'm the last word. I'm the period at the end of the sentence. I am the one who, when everything is said and done, I am, as he said before, I'm the beginning and the end. So he says, I'm the amen. But he says also, not only am I the amen, he said, I am the faithful and true witness. So basically he says, you can believe what I say. If I say it, you can take it to the bank. What I say is true. You don't have to wonder whether I'm telling the truth or not. I'm faithful. I'm true. I am real. And then he says, I'm the beginning of the creation of God. Now, different people who don't believe that Jesus is God take this and say, see, he's the beginning of the creation of God. That is, God created him first before he created other things. But grammatically, that isn't allowed for here. He says he's the beginning of the creation of God because he's actually the one who did the creating. Remember in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, in the beginning, God 
created the heavens and the earth. So who was there in the beginning? God. And Jesus is saying, I'm God. In John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he goes on to say there in John chapter 1, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he was the beginning. He was the one who did the creating. So he's saying, look, I am the punctuation mark at the end of the sentence. I am the so be it after you're finished with everything you have to say. I'm real. I'm true. And not only that, I made everything. So he's pulling out all the stops and establishing his credibility for them. And then he says, I know your works. And that's where they go, "Uh uh-oh. Because he says this to everyone, and then he kind of lets them know what kind of works. How How are we doing? And again, he says that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. You make me sick. Some of the other churches made him sad. Some of the other churches made him mad. Laodicea just made him sick. And so you're like, oh man. I mean, this is a rough way to start. Now, Usually people who teach on this passage say that hot means really on fire for God. And cold means you don't care about God at all. And lukewarm is somebody somewhere in between. And they interpret this to mean that he's just going, I wish you weren't even a Christian at all because then at least you could get saved. Or I wish you were on fire. I'm not sure that that's really in the original meaning of the words. I'm not sure that's accurate. Um, the problem is the word here for hot isn't used anywhere in Scripture. So it's hard to get a, exactly what he's talking about. The word here for cold is only used one other place in Scripture. Over in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says that if you give a cup of cold water, refreshing water to someone, then you're going to be blessed. And so there, cold is a positive thing. And uh, But Lukewarm is the only thing, and this word for lukewarm, this is the only place it's used in the New Testament. But what he defines for us is what lukewarm looks like, because that's what they were. So we can kind of guess at what hot and cold are based on his description of lukewarm. But I think really to understand it, it helps to know something about the city of Laodicea. Um, They were a very proud people, as you'll see as he goes on. But they were in an interesting place. They were very wealthy. They were known for three things, basically. They were the center of a lot of the banking industry of those days, so they were very financially well-off. They also made a lot of uh, fabric and clothes out of wool, and that was a distinction they had. And then the city of Laodicea also had some, some special mineral mud uh, that they would put on people's eyes And they said it would make you see. Now, people have gone back and evaluated the mud there and determined that it was just snake oil. There really was nothing in the mud that would help people see. It's just that if you put mud in your eyes and then you take it out again, you're like, wow, I see so much better. Yeah, because (laughs) the stuff is out of your eyes. But, But that was Laodicea. Now, they were located in a place that was strategic in some ways, and they were up on kind of a plateau, But the big weakness of Laodicea was that they didn't have a fresh water source. And so 
their water, because they were rich, they could afford to pipe water in. So they built aqueducts for miles to bring water to their city from other places. Two places in particular, one of them Colossae, Colossae that the letter to the Colossians that Paul wrote, um, it was addressed to. Um, in Colossae, they had these great w springs of cold, clear water. I don't know if you've ever just drank water that's cold coming out of the ground. It's amazing. It's just so good. And so Colossae had that. So they had a pipeline going from Colossae to Laodicea to bring in cold water. There's another place called Hierapolis that was a few miles away as well. And they were known for their mineral hot springs. The hot water that would soothe you when you get in, you just feel better. Oh, it's like when you get into a jacuzzi after you've been working out, it just feels so good. Well, Hierapolis had that. So they built a, a, a pipe that came from Hierapolis to bring hot water to Laodicea. The problem is they're miles away from either one. So when you turn on the cold water, it wasn't cold. It was cruddy and lukewarm. It had stuff in it because of the pipes. Same thing with the, with the hot water. It was all polluted and everything. What you end up having, the water in Laodicea was awful. It had stuff floating around in it. For most people who would come and drink Laodicean water, it would make them sick. People who get used to it, like anywhere in the world, if you get used to bad water, it doesn't make you all that sick. But it was gross water because it wasn't hot and it wasn't cold. And so Jesus shows his insight into the area. By the way, whenever someone wanted to conquer Laodicea, they didn't really conquer them. What they would do is they would just plug up the pipes. And when they'd plug up the pipes, then they'd come to Laodicea and go, if you want water, you need to pay us in order for us to open up your pipes. So they would pay them because they had lots of money and, and uh, that's kind of how their existence went along. So what Jesus is doing is not only talking about them personally or the church, but he's referring to the whole area. And this becomes important later because he's going, your problem is you're not hot and you're not cold. Why? Because you're so far from the source. Hot can be great on a cold evening when you're really chilled and you have a nice hot cup of hot chocolate or coffee, if you like coffee, it's like, oh, that's great. One that's been sitting there half a day, not so much. On a hot day, you get a big glass of cold lemonade with ice. It's like, oh, there's nothing better than that. But room temperature lemonade, eh, not so much. So he's, so he's saying, hey, I just wish you had some kind of quality to you. You're just blah. You're just lukewarm. And then as he goes on to describe it, I think it becomes even more clear what he's talking about. So I, I question, although it's true that sometimes you'd be better off not being a Christian at all, because then there's a chance of you getting saved, as opposed to just being blah and not really into it and not really out of it. That is a dangerous place to be. I'm just not sure I see it taught in this passage. So, but he, he comes right off the bat and says, I am sick, just like people who would go to Laodicea and drink your lousy water. And so that's kind of a rough way to start a letter, um, to remind them of something that they didn't like to think about. But it gets even worse. He says, the reason you're lukewarm and I get sick when I think of you 
is because you say, verse 17, I am rich, I've become wealthy. The word for rich and the word for wealthy are the same basic word. The first one that's translated rich in our translation is the noun form, and then the one that's translated wealthy is the verb form in the perfect tense. Essentially, what he's saying is, you're proud that you're rich, and you're proud about the way that you got rich. You see yourself as self-made people. And so you're happy where you are, and you're happy what you had to do to get there. But he says also, and you have need of nothing. You don't think you have a need in the world. You're totally fine where you are. Now, being content is a good thing. You know, being in a place where you're like, I'm happy where God has placed me. However, that's only true if where he has placed you, there aren't options. There aren't things that he wants to do. He doesn't ever want you to just stay somewhere and not take opportunities. Their problem was they were missing out on their potential by being satisfied where they were. On the one hand, satisfaction is good if you've exhausted your resources. But satisfaction will guard you from progress if you're just always just wanting to stay where you are and be real conservative that way. And he said, that's who you guys are. You don't need anything. And you don't realize, you can't even figure out that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, the Laodiceans were known for their pride, and they were known for not wanting help from anyone. In fact, one time, an earthquake hit and just about destroyed the city of Laodicea. And there's paperwork that shows that the Roman Empire offered to send federal funds to Laodicea to rebuild the city. And the Laodiceans said, we don't need your federal funds, we'll do it on our own. So that was them. It's like the kind of, you know, there are some people who think they don't need help. There are some people who don't know what a mess they are. And in this case, these people were a mess, but he said, what makes you lukewarm is it doesn't bother you that you're a mess. You fool yourself into thinking you're fine. And we certainly, we can all relate to this. There are plenty of times when we feel like we're going to fall apart, but we act like we're fine. And there, the world is full of people who pretend to be rich when they really aren't. That's essentially what credit is. If you have any kind of credit card debt or if you you know, buy everything on credit, what you're doing is saying, I don't want to live like the poor person that I am, so I'm going to buy things that make me look rich. And there's this self-deception that sets in and really, you're you know, wretched and, and pathetic and everything, but, but you're trying to look like you're okay. You're trying to pretend like you're okay. And that was the culture in the city of Laodicea. It was just worrying about how you look and pretending to be something that you aren't. Kind of like people who are getting older, but they're still really trying to look young, and they think they fool people, and they don't fool anyone. Like You're just like, what's that old dude doing with that shirt on or whatever, um, you know, but, but um, that was Laodicea. Now, as he describes them, he says, you guys are wretched. That word wretched is a word that, that has the word for endure, and then the second word that's mixed with that is the word for calluses. And what he's saying is, you've been through a lot, and you've been scraped and 
beaten up, and as a result, you've developed a tough exterior. You've, you've developed calluses, so you just don't feel anymore, and you think that's okay. You'd, you're satisfied with being calloused. The word for miserable is a word that means pitiable or pathetic. People are looking at you and going, you're a mess, but you're just like, no, I'm not, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. You're poor, but you pretend like you're rich. You spend money you don't have. You're blind, you can't see reality. Even though you guys have that mud that's supposed to heal you, which is just snake oil, it's just a joke, you don't even realize that your vision's fading and you're naked. You're, you should be embarrassed walking around like you are and yet you don't do anything to correct it. Um, and so he says, here's how I counsel you. He, he doesn't just leave them there, but he says, here's what I mean by the fact that you're lukewarm. You think you're fine, but the things that you think of as riches really aren't worth anything. And the areas of need that you have in your life, you're so proud you don't want to say, I need help, and so you don't ask for help, and everybody's just looking at you thinking how pathetic you are, and you won't admit it because your pride is going to fix this on your own. And so that's a pretty bleak picture. But he says, let me counsel you. See, he doesn't want to just leave him there and go, okay, I throw up, end of story. But he goes, it doesn't have to be this way. And Jesus' message to them now becomes a message of great hope, promising results and things that are better than anything that he promised to any of the other churches in some cases. And so he's saying, look, here's what you need to do. Here's what I'm advising you. I counsel you to buy from me gold that's refined in the fire that you may actually be rich, first of all. He says, you value what you value, but what you need to do is cash that in on what real value is. You need to discover actual riches instead of delusional riches. That everything, whatever money, whatever toys, whatever stuff you have, that doesn't make you rich. It makes you lukewarm. But he goes, I have stuff, and it's going to go through trials and being refined in the fire, but I have real value that I want to put into your life. Now, you might go, but why does he say to buy this stuff? Well, for one thing, buying is something that they knew something about. Um, they were very focused on business and riches. And so he said, I've got a deal for you. But also, you know, everything that they were hanging on to, in some cases, were keeping them from real riches. And so often our possessions are what robs us of true riches. And so in a sense, sometimes it's true that you have to let go of things that you value in order to discover things that you will actually end up valuing more. And so he's saying, look, why don't you let go of all your toys and your trinkets and your business success and your money and all of that stuff, and you might want to invest it in something that matters more. Jesus had said, 
Don't lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust decay and thieves break in and steal. Lay up treasures in heaven. Well, that's kind of what he's telling them. There's a better way for you to invest what you have than the way that you've invested it. He goes, make a deal with me. And then he says, you know, not only that, but um, get white garments from me that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. See, by clothing themselves, they were lacking. In the same way that when Adam and Eve wore fig leaves, it wasn't working for them. Now, they were no doubt wearing their local wool, which looked nice, but wool in those days, it would scratch you and it would make you kind of miserable. And Jesus is going, you're not your outfit right now isn't working. Maybe it makes you look skinny and makes people think that you're really good looking, but I know there's something more I have for you because you're worried about how you dress and you're worried about what people think, but he says, when you wear what I'm giving you, the righteousness of Jesus, when you have his approval in your life, then you don't need to be ashamed anymore. You don't need to worry about how other people are judging you and you don't have to get yourself so fixed up in order to impress people. You don't have to spend money on clothes you can't afford. Let me clothe you, and you're going to see that there is no reason for you to feel exposed now. You're, you're taken care of. The way they were dressed left them exposed. It left them ashamed. Kind of like if you get a brand new pair of pants, and, and they rip down the rear, and you're walking around, and and you're thinking, boy, I look good in these things. And, you know, when I tried them on, they were really tight, but they're actually loosening up now. It's great. And everybody's looking at you going, what an idiot. That's kind of what he's saying. God, let me clothe you. Let me take care of you. I have white, white garments for you, my righteousness. And, and, so, and then he says, and all anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Now, again, they had this magic potion that they thought worked. It certainly didn't. But he's saying, you guys there in Laodicea, you keep using that stuff. I have something that will open your eyes in a way that nothing has ever opened your eyes before. I'm going to let you see things as they really are instead of the way you've deceived yourself into seeing them. Your jadedness, your callousness, your pride and selfishness, your unwillingness to say, help, has got you in a mess. But what I have for you is something so much better than that. And, and then he goes on in verse 19, and he says, look, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Now, the word for rebuke, when we think of that, we think of him just going, you guys are sickening. But the word there for rebuke, what the, what the word means in the original is to convince. He goes, I'm trying to convince you that you have more potential than you think. I'm trying to convince you that there's a better way to live life than the way that you are doing it. Now, the word that's chasten is the word paiduo in the Greek. It's the normal word that means to teach someone, to educate a child. And he goes... I'm trying to convince you 
that you're going the wrong way, living your life wrong. I'm trying to teach you how to live life. In fact, the theme of the New Testament in so many ways, Jesus' teachings and the apostles' teachings, is all about you can have a better life than you have. As Jesus said, I came so that you'll have an abundant life, and you're settling for this cheesy, crummy life. And Jesus here is just going, I'm trying to teach you how to live. I'm trying to help you to realize it can be better than what it is. I want to persuade you of this. And and notice he says, the ones that I love, I persuade and I educate. Now, this is an interesting statement because he is saying that he loves them. Usually when we think of Laodicea, we think he's sick of those people and he doesn't want anything to do with them. But he's saying, I'm talking to you because I love you. But it's interesting, too, the word there for love, the Greek word, is not the normal Greek word for love, which is agape. Almost every time Jesus talked about love, which was a lot, almost every time John talked about love, which is a lot, um, they used the word agape. But when John 3 and when Jesus said, for God so loved the world, that's the word agape. But here it's the word phileo, which which the, the only time we see Jesus using that for the, mo- the one that stands out is when he used it in contrast. And actually, Peter was the one who used it when Jesus and Peter were talking and Jesus said, do you agape me after the resurrection? And Peter goes, I phileo you. I'm your friend. I'm, I like you. Um, it's a word that is it's a little different than, than the normal word for love. But here's the, here's the thing. And, and you might think, Wow, he didn't say agape. But you know, they were used to hearing that Jesus is agape, that God is agape. And they knew that in a great sense, Jesus loves the world. That had been taught to them many times. But a lot of people can handle the fact that God loves them, but do you really understand that he likes you also? A lot of times, Our perspective is, yeah, God loves me, sort of technically, but in reality, I don't think he likes me too much. And I've even heard, you know, preachers say that. God loves you, but he doesn't like what you're doing. Well, in this case, he's violently ill because of what they're doing to themselves, but he's saying, listen, I'm talking to you because I like you. And, And I really appreciate that, that in the middle of what, he is saying to them that he goes, I like you guys, and that's why I'm talking to you. But he tells them, as many as I like, I convince and I teach, therefore be zealous and repent. That word for zealous comes from the same root word. It means to boil, and it comes from the same root word that's used for hot earlier in the passage. Um, it's often used to refer to passion. Somebody who, you know, boiling, and it can be a bad thing. This word is used negatively a lot. When it talks about people who are having an argument, it says that the wisdom from, from above doesn't boil over, doesn't get zealous in this way. There are other places in the scripture where this word is used positively, and this is one of them. And it, it hints as to what's happening with what he's been saying is that, These people who, because of their pride and their unwillingness to ask for help and their settling for an inferior life compared to the life that he has for them, 
He says, why don't you start to care? Why don't you get passionate? Get yourself fired up a little bit and, and decide that you don't want to settle for a calloused life. You don't want to settle for a life that's kind of like de half dead, just waiting to go to heaven. That you want the abundant life that Jesus promises. So he says, get the passion back to life. And he says also, make sure that, you know, as he says there, repent. The word repent, metanoia, it means think differently. You need to adjust the way that you're thinking so that you can change the way that you're living so that you can let go of the garbage that you've settled for and you can find a place where, where life is cool and refreshing, warm and inviting and comforting, but never room temperature, never just a calloused, you know, uh, polluted existence. He's going, I want more, and I have more for you than that. And then he really describes what that's all about in verse 20. Most of you are familiar with this verse, generally kind of used out of context, but he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and I will dine, or the old King James says, sup with him and he with me. Remember last week when we were in the church at Philadelphia, he talked about opened and closed doors. And he said, I have the keys. When I open a door, nobody's going to close it. And, and when I close the door, nobody's going to open it. But he was giving them that hope that I have a door that I've opened for you. Now here, he, he springs off that same imagery and he says, listen, you guys are settling for mediocre. You guys are settling for no passion. You guys are settling for, for just taking care of yourself and getting by and convincing yourself that this junk that you buy somehow makes life worthwhile. And he goes, I got a door and I'm knocking on it. I'm patiently waiting for you to open the door that I have for you. And what does that door lead to? Supper. It leads to dinner. It leads to dining. It's all about fellowship. And see, when we try to make ourselves rich, when we try to make life work for us, when we try to be the big cheese, when we try to impress people, one of the first things that we give up is fellowship. Just like their water supply was too far from the source to be either cold and refreshing or hot and comforting, so in our lives, we keep God at a distance and we allow what we get from him to run through long pipes. And so it's already been kind of messed up and everything and we're not receiving directly from him. And he's just saying, I want to fellowship with you. Now you have to understand a little about their culture in order to completely understand what this means. In the Middle East, the meal that he's talking about, supper or dinner, it was the final meal of the day. And their lives revolved around that meal. That was where they would use their hospitality to invite people over, to host them. The whole family would always be there. 
and they would have several course meal, and it was, it was a chance to talk about your day, to unwind from the pressures of the day, and to get yourself nourished and encouraged so that you were ready to face the next day. It was, if you've ever been to Israel with us, we always take people and there's a place where we go where we ride camels up to this Bedouin tent and they have supper prepared for us. And they're so welcoming. The one guy pretends to be Abraham. And, you know, they bring you all this food and they keep it, anything that you want, they'll keep giving you more of it. And they keep encouraging you to stay as long as you want. And it's, personally, I'm not crazy about it because they don't believe in chairs. So you're sitting on the floor and, and it's, there's no burgers. But, you know, for, for them, it's like I'm showering you with this stuff. And you just sit around and you talk, and, and it, despite the fact that it's not my cup of tea for food, I love that time. It's always a special time. Well, in their culture, that was the way every day ended. The sun had gone down, let's get the family together, and friends, and let's really fellowship. We have lost that for a great degree. I mean, it used to be even you know, 50 years ago, that most of the people in our country, every night, everyone was there for supper. And you do a little devotions or something, people would talk about their day. It was always, all we did was eat supper. You can see this on TV land on some of the old shows. But in our culture, it's like, if we talk about dinner, it's more about, yeah, let's go out to dinner. So we go to a restaurant where it's so noisy you can't even hear anybody talk, but that's kind of nice because it relieves the pressure of having to communicate and you just, you eat your food, you order whatever you want and you could be there by yourself and it would just be the same. But you fill yourself and then you go home and now you're exhausted so the TV goes on and that's dinner. Or, you know, maybe you go throw a pizza in the oven or whatever, maybe you create some food and you go, where do you want to eat today? Where do you want to eat tonight? Should we eat in the living room? Should we eat in the family room in front of the TV? Should we eat in the dining room? Or how about just at the bar, at the kitchen? It's like, where are we going to do this? It, it, it's not the special event. Now, a lot of times we're blessed when both of our kids and their uh, William's wife and Danny's girlfriend and Ann and I, we're all home and Ann fixes a dinner and and it's great, and we actually do it. But often somebody's off doing something else, or we're busy, or by the time we get around to making dinner, it's so late, we just want to eat it and veg, and we've lost sight of what he's talking about. But Jesus is using their culture to describe relationship, to describe intimacy, to describe fellowship with him. And he's saying, you guys are so rich that you're really busy. And all of your work has robbed your life of real fellowship and closeness. Because if you're working and that's important to you, time is money. And so we work late and everyone works and different people work different schedules and I need to go out tonight to do this and kids have this activity and whatever. And so... Supper never happens. Dinner never happens. But Jesus is using that and saying, in your relationship with me, you can focus on what you pretend to have and you can settle for that. 
Or you can take everything that you value and push it aside and come to me and spend some time with me. And I'll nourish you. And we'll have a great time together. But Jesus basically is saying, if you're in a hurry, you don't have time for me, then I don't have time for you. When you get some time, be still and know that I am God. Set aside time to be with me. Now, in our crazy frenzy of society, this is something that we have a hard time doing. Because we're obsessed with being as efficient as we can be and getting the most done that we can possibly do. So even if it's not business, even in ministry, we're always like, I want to do six different things. I hear about all these great causes and I want to do them all. And what happens is there's no downtime. There's no relaxed time because everybody's pushing something. And, and uh, you know, in, in their days, I mean, we get inspired as we see Jesus gets up early in the morning, preaches all day, feeds thousands of people, healing people on into the night. Then late at night, he goes off and spends time with the Father. And we go, yeah, that's kind of how my day is. But then what we ignore, it'll record a day like that, and then it will say, then Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Well, so nothing happened between Galilee and Jerusalem, so they don't write about it. Then they go, in Jerusalem, he went to the temple, and he did this, and he did that. And it looks like when you take the compression of his life, it looks like our life, always on the move. And that's what we even think is what ministry should be like. But for Jesus to go up to Jerusalem, it's not close to Galilee. And they would spend days and weeks from Galilee to Jerusalem, and nobody wrote about it. Nobody wrote what happened, because they were just walking. It was a hike. It was an adventure. They were talking and hanging out, laughing, asking questions. It was like their life mostly was like that. But we think that their life was as busy as ours because we look at our life and we assume this is the way life is supposed to be. But what, what Jesus is saying to Laodicea is, you have traded away fellowship and intimacy and what you have to show for it is a bunch of stuff. A lot of programs, a lot of you know, places, a lot of possessions, a lot of connections. And yeah, you're getting a bunch of stuff done. But he's saying, I wish you would trade that away to just open the door to me so we could sit down and enjoy supper together, so that we could sit down and just have fellowship. A lot of people are so frantically busy, I'm not even sure that we're going to enjoy heaven that much. Because in heaven, there's not just going to be a ton of things to do. And people who define their lives based on what they do, it's going to be a little weird when they get to heaven, when mainly he's, we go, okay, Jesus, what are we going to do? He goes, well, you know, let's have a worship service for a while. Then, you know, why don't you rest for a couple millennia? And, you know, then whatever, we'll see. Maybe go take a dip. Do, you know. And we're like, What? I feel worthless when that happens because I feel like my worth is based on my production. And worth is not equivalent to production. In fact, real riches, 
Real satisfaction, real wealth come when we stop having to do all that stuff and instead we just go, I'm going to sit down and spend some time with the Lord, with people I love. That's what wealth is. When you lose someone that you love, you'd give anything to have a supper with them. But our values become so twisted and messed up. And that's what Jesus is saying to the Laodiceans. He's going, I like you guys, and I have so much for you, so much I want to do for you, so much we can share together. But you just won't shut up and sit down long enough to do it. You're too busy to open the door to me because you're trying to rattle all these other doors. You're trying to do all these other things. You're striving and killing yourself. And I'm just going, listen to my knock. I have something better for you than all that stuff. It's one of the reasons, frankly, why as a pastor, I constantly fight from having more and more stuff going on in the church. And everybody who comes and has a great idea for another program, another thing, another... And I'm like, I, you know, I appreciate that because people who are uncomfortable with themselves, people who don't have a healthy understanding of who they really are, and they, they're basically living a, a lifestyle that's based on fooling themselves and pretending to be something, um, that's all they have. And so I try to be sensitive to that, but at the same time, I, I feel it's so important to communicate, no, 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 we don't have to do a bunch more stuff. That's not what God's asking us. He's not asking us, yeah, we need another function, another fellowship, another Bible study, another program. He goes, how about me? How about just sit down with your family and let me be there? Let me participate with you. And, and that's his heart. And, and, I, and I love that he presents that because in, in a busy, work-oriented society like Laodicea, that was necessary. And in a society like ours where we have become calloused and insensitive and where we settle for survival instead of thriving and health and vitality and energy, boy, do we need this message from Jesus. And then... He goes on and says that to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. <laughs> they were trying to build their own throne. People who are chronically busy are trying to make their own kingdom. And their throne was made out of worthless stuff, but they were convinced that they were impressing people, whether it was with their money or the things they bought on credit, or how many outfits of wool clothes they had, or whatever it was, that was their throne. And he says, if you will just settle down and, and spend time with me, and let me be enough for you, you know what? When we get to heaven, you can sit right next to me on my throne. Fine with me. I don't hang on to it. I don't have a throne so I can be better than other people. I have a throne because I want to share it. People can take turns coming up and sitting on my throne. I don't care. Uh, imagine that. Of all the other promises that are made to the churches, I don't think there are any that can compare to sit down with Jesus for supper and just enjoy his company and then in heaven come and sit down on his throne. 
I, when I was a kid, we went up to Sacramento and we were touring the Capitol and Ronald Reagan was the governor at the time. That's how long ago it was. But I, I got away from the tour group as I tend to do and, and there's Reagan's office and the door was unlocked. Some, this is way pre 9-11. So I open the door, I walk in and there's his desk. Reagan's not there, I was kind of disappointed. Um, but so I go sit in his chair and amazingly, his drawers were all unlocked. I'm opening drawers, I'm taking stuff out, I'm looking for a souvenir. And it was amazing to sit there at Reagan's desk. Um, security then came and pulled me out. And, but Jesus is going, this is my throne. You think it's a big deal to sit at Reagan's desk? Jerry Brown's sitting at it right now. It's like, but this is my throne and you can sit with me. So having that promise means you don't ever have to worry again how you look, what people think of you, how they judge you, what you possess, how well off you are. What you need to do is, is go, I need help. And then he says, I'll help you. I can't help you if you don't need help. I can't help you if you won't realize that what you've, what you've striven for is that a word? What you strove for um, is, yeah, or what you've strived for, uh, what you worked so hard to get is, is nothing. Let go of it and let me give you something that will be worth something. And so he goes, You'll, you can sit on my throne. Years ago, too, I, I was in Washington, D.C., and there's the National Cathedral, and there they have this prominent pulpit. It's way up high, steps leading up to it. And Martin Luther King preached there. Billy Graham has preached there. Mother Teresa has addressed a crowd there. Reagan's funeral was there. And here I am, I'm walking up the steps to address the crowd at the National Cathedral. My friends are like taking pictures of me and everything. And I stood there and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Then security came and grabbed me, but we got a few pictures before they did and pulled me down. Oh, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to go up there. What do you think those ropes are for? Oh, I have other people, I don't know. But we're talking God's throne, Jesus' throne with the Father, and we have a part with him. What's better than that? What is more impressive? What matters more than that? And so then he just says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. His message is this. Your life is one of settling for whatever it is that you have. And you've become so beaten up and calloused that you think that what your life is now about is survival. But he says, if you can only let go of what you value so much, I can help you to see things you couldn't see otherwise. I can help you to find where real value lies. And it comes down to fellowship with me. And that will lead you off into all sorts of other wonderful things. But until you recognize this, I cannot help you. And, and Jesus says, I see where you are and I see where you could be. And it makes me sick. And if you have kids, you know about this, where you know your kids have all this potential. And if you see them squander it, it literally makes you ill. And he is looking at these Christians and at this church, and he's just going, 
man, what I have for you and what you're settling for is pathetic. It's sickening how you're robbing yourself. It's sickening how you're convincing yourself that that car, that house, that job, that activity, that achievement, that accomplishment, it makes me sick that you think that's where it's at. And if you just let go of all that stuff for a moment, you could listen and hear my knocking on your door and inviting you to have fellowship with me, to sit down at the end of a day and to go, here we are, no agenda, you don't want anything, you just want to bless me. And that's his message to the church at Laodicea, and that's his message to us as well. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. It's so clear. As we look at it, we discover that what you want for us is less than we have, but it's also much more than we have. So help us to be willing to let go of whatever it is we're hanging on to in some illusion that it means something. And help us to instead create that space by opening the door to fellowship with you, that being with you and being with others, with you present, is all that really matters to us. We are sorry for, like the Laodiceans, working hard at nothing and making you just have a sick feeling from seeing what it is that we passed over and what we're missing. We're sorry for the times when we get so busy that we miss the privilege of raising our children. We're sorry for the times when we miss seeing your beauty because we're so busy going somewhere. That when it rains, we get bummed because it affects our ability to drive instead of seeing the beauty that comes from that rain. Lord, in so many ways, we've blown it like the Laodiceans. And we've settled for a lukewarm life. But God, help us to get that passion back. Help us to find that place of true wealth in your presence, taking the time to follow you, to listen to you, to love you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.